0: Thank you Or The title I've been given is uh, The Big Society, What Does It Mean to Migrant Communities? And I think a lot of people might prefer the title just to be The Big Society, What Does It Mean? Um, but that isn't the point. The is, What Does It Mean to Migrant Communities? So I'll run quite quickly, quite a wide overview of what I think the Big Society means for migrant communities. and. You tell from the newspapers that uh, this is, you know, a very timely discussion that we're having this morning, and I think it's, it really is interesting how the big society has become a very hot issue. It hasn't become a hot issue because politicians have been raising it this week. It's become a hot issue because the voluntary sector has been raising it big time, and I think there is a huge degree of anxiety, a huge degree of concern within the voluntary and community sector, and particularly for today's discussion within the refugee and migrant community sector in terms of what is happening to the sector and to the people. This is the, the concerns come from the advent of the age of austerity. What will that mean for communities? What will that mean for individuals? And then a concern for if there is this deterioration of people's level of income and uh, increasing homelessness and so on, will there then be an increase in community tension? impacting very significantly on refugees and migrants? And finally, what impact will the cuts have on the sector itself and the infrastructure of support around within communities? So, to start with, I want to say that we are worried and seriously worried about what what is happening. Today, I'm not an academic and I'm not presenting a piece of reasoned research, although I know this is compass and therefore I have to be reasonable, but I am talking as someone who has been working in this sector for more years than I ought to say and uh, someone who has the job of steering uh, an organisation through these very difficult times. Steering an organisation in terms of making sure that the services are appropriate for the changing times, uh, in terms of meeting the demand and in terms of funding and employing people. I want to try and make some sense of the concept of the big society, and I put in brackets civil society because I think the the government made a huge mistake by labelling this big society. If they talked about civil society, which is what I think they mean, then it would actually have enabled us to engage with the discussion at a more rational level. I want to look at the contribution that's already been made within civil society by individual migrants and migrant communities, and finally, and this the greater part, I hope, looking at the opportunities and threats that are posed by the current agenda. I'm not going to dwell too long on this, but I think in terms of engaging with the the concept of big society, civil society, I think we have to take it seriously. I think if you just dismiss it as a, a cover for cuts, you then don't get the opportunity to really engage with the debates and the discussions and the discourse that government is having. And It seems to me that The concept of civil society that that we're dealing with here is actually classic Tory philosophy, quite deep-rooted political philosophy with its intellectual background. But it's, it's understanding that there are within society institutions, enterprises, associations which bring people together and create some sense of common allegiance and bonding within society. And that is essential. And those kind of institutions are religious, community organizations, they're enterprises, businesses, they are the institutions of law, they are the the framework of civil liberties, marriage. Mm -hmm. Ian Duncan Smith gave a speech this week about marriage. These institutions create cohesion within society. And the, the classic thinking is that these institutions need freedom, they need space, they need autonomy, and government shouldn't be interfering with them. And I think when you look at the Cameron government, I think what we're, we're seeing is a set of pillars which are designed to do that. The economic strategy, the welfare reforms, the social agenda of the big society are encouraging autonomy, motivating participation, whilst militating aggressively against dependency, passivity and against a centralising state. And what we're looking at and experiencing is a very radical and reforming government. Whether we like the reforms or like that radical character or not, we have to face the fact that we are experiencing something that we haven't experienced for a very long time. And it is clearly quite counter to the style of the previous government. So we have got, I think, in our sector, quite used to government programs into which we slotted. You know, uh, whatever it was, New Deal for Community, or whatever the the latest uh, program was, Working Neighborhoods Funds, we got used to slotting into those programs and adapting our responses to that government centrally driven program. They are not going to be part of it. This government has a completely different style to the previous one. And quite clearly there's an interrelationship between the economic agenda and the social agenda. So uh, this is a government that is about deficit reduction, but we can see that the way in which the economic policy is shaped is not just about a temporary slacking off of, of investment in public services, but a longer term permanent agenda in relationship to shifting that. And shifting the responsibility from the central state down to the individual and the community. Uh, and rebalancing the the relationship between state market and civil society. So that's the broader political agenda that we're we're engaging with. And I want to, with that as a background, then start to think, where do migrants fit into that? And and I I, begin on a very kind of positive note. Um, Civil society is a very familiar concept to us within our sector and amongst migrants and refugees. I don't think there's anything strange about the ideas behind it. Refugees and migrants are hard-working communities, there's no expectation of dependency upon the state. How many times have we heard uh, asylum seekers say, why on earth don't they let us work? Why do they give us benefits? You know, we we don't want benefits, we want to work. These are entrepreneurial communities, go to Dalston Market, go to Whitechapel Market, uh, look at some of the, the huge businesses that have developed in this country from migrant community. The migrant and refugee community organisations, numerous with volunteers, funneling social capital that is brought, faith and values capital that migrant communities have. Ninety-five percent of the people who attend mass on a Sunday morning in London are from migrant backgrounds. Are migrants? That's you know a huge shift. The only place where uh, religious uh, participation is increasing in the UK is in London because of migration the significant bridging capital in terms of the way in which people move through refugee community groups and faith groups into mainstream employment and also go on to develop civic leadership. And I think if anybody goes to a a citizenship ceremony, you know, you just know how much people actually value the concept of being citizens and and so on. So migrants are the big society. You would kind of think that uh, David Cameron should be very pleased really and it's all sorted, and I should sit down and, and go home, say so we've sorted it. But let's look in, in more depth in terms of how these two things match together, what's going on for refugee migrant communities now, the concept that the government has put forward. When the government came in, a lot of people would say, there are plenty of opportunities for the third sector. Don't worry, so let's look and see if we can find what those opportunities are. I mean, one, thing that is, is said, that we ought to be able to produce our own solutions, that we should be left to, to find our own answers. And I think that is absolutely true. If you take an area like uh, employment, I think those of us who run employment services know, we know how to do it better than say the large scale companies that are just managing these welfare to work programs with very poor outputs and so on and we know that that at a local level our kind of organization can actually produce much better better results but the way in which this uh, contracting is going to take place and so on is that we will not be putting forward ideas we will have to be subcontractors to to much larger people so the opportunity is there to to shift the framework and the method of delivery, but actually we are going to be really stuck being at a very low level in the supply chain between large suppliers. So there's there's some, some shifting around that needs to be done if we are going to be the people who are presenting new solutions and better solutions. Opportunities, we're told, for future funding, particularly with the outsourcing of public services. I put three there, just examples health inequalities, maybe there will be some, but how that would pan out, what will happen with that, we don't know because at the time, at the moment, the PCTs are all being reorganized and all the staff that we used to know are going to be out of work by March and the public health budget is going to transfer for local authorities and we don't quite know how or when or whatever, so that's a health. The work program, I think, huge contracts and very limited number of organisations working at ground level will, will be able to even begin to engage with that agenda because of the nature of it and the huge scales of the contract. And personalisation, I think, requires, if, if we're going to engage with the personalisation agenda, then uh, organisations have got to really rethink. And remember that we're going to be in competition if we engage with those outsourced public funding opportunities. We'll be in competition with, with you know, large housing, uh, registered social landlords, big private sector providers, of health and social care and so on. So maybe those outsourced public services are going to be quite hard for us to be able to engage with. Another opportunity, and I think this is a, a real one, is around the localism agenda. The potential to negotiate new space in local agendas, and I think some local authorities, you know, will be giving that space. And I think there will be some enthusiasm, I think, amongst local authorities to be able to use local suppliers, i.e., local community organisations. But the mechanisms are really hard and very clear, unclear uh, at the moment. I know mean, in our at our hamlets, we have budget forums, and we've got quite good negotiation between uh, the local authority and third sector. But that isn't true in many boroughs, and lots of people will be left out. And it's it's clear that in in this new localism agenda, the more strident voices may well be heard over and above the less strident. So if you look at Pallingswick House, this famous you know example where is it 23 community organisations are having to leave, including refugee and community organisations, in order that uh, a free school move in, you see. So the more strident voices will win over the less powerful uh, community groups. And then these larger, longer contracts, which the government prefers, uh, means that bigger suppliers and bigger contractors will want to move in. So if if a contract is given between five boroughs rather than one, then then the opportunity for the smaller local organisation will be less. Okay, now the threats. So they're the opportunities, which I think are fairly limited, but now the threats. I think the biggest threat is, is what actually happens to the economy. And I think that's the place for us to start, because we know that there's going to be considerable impact, a bigger impact on the poorest uh, in terms of the demand on services, increase in exploitation in jobs, in housing, uh, increasing homelessness, poorer health outcomes, and so on. That has been uh, already said in terms of what's going to happen over the next few years. And I think we've got to recognise that public expenditure cuts are permanent, not temporary. So that means that the economy means that actually the economy of the third sector, the economy of big society, has also got to be readjusted somehow. And I I want to pose the question, I don't know the answer, but can volunteering, community organising, social entrepreneurship and philanthropy, which are the pillars of this big society concept, can they actually, combined, can they overcome entrenched and persistent poverty? And if you recognize the differential disadvantage of refugee and migrant communities, can this is this strong enough a tool to overcome those problems? And then I think, The abandonment of the socio-economic duty, quality duty in the Quality Act, sort of implies that the government's view is that economic advancement, economic improvement, is the responsibility of the individual and of civil society and not of government. And yet actually, I think that for civil society and for the big society really to work, then you've got to have in there some sort of at least minimum guarantee that people will not fall below a certain level of poverty. I put this area of dysfunction because if you take that concept of civil society, the concept that these free-floating institutions are autonomous, including civil liberties, human rights, institutions of the law and so on, if those are free-floating and autonomous without government interference, what happens if you don't fit in? What happens if you can't get in? Institutions of the law can be free-floating and autonomous, but what if you can't access those? So I think there are crucial issues around legal aid, around advice services, around access to English language courses and so on, which are essential glue of a functioning civil society, because it means that everybody is included in that society. If you don't have those and you take those away, and they are, then there is a question, I think a very serious question, towards that political philosophy, which is, whether or not it has legitimacy and whether they're really democratic. The issue of resources for the third sector and the community sector, we know this isn't, a, this isn't another <coughs> new deal for communities or whatever, this isn't another package of funding, it's a concept, but there are some resources. We're going to have 5,000 community organizers and I put in brackets the Alinsky method because community organizing is not the kind of work that we do. Ground, grassroots, engaged, long term community development, which is not about just creating a group of activists over a particular issue. It's about something else. But there are going to be 5,000 community organisers. A big society bank providing loan finances, but we couldn't take a loan, we couldn't take the risk of taking a loan. A Neighbourhood grants, not sure about that, I haven't seen anything about that. Community service by civil servants, thank you as long as it's not a painting party, you know, to come and paint your corridor and paint the floor at the same time. An annual Big Society Day, well, we have annual days, thank you. We've got our refugee weeks and all the rest of it. Funding for social entrepreneurs and so on. I think that package doesn't offer very much to us at the ground level. I don't quite know where we would get. For some it will. It will offer some things to some people, but I don't quite see where that fits in for us. biggest threat of all, I think, is the pace of change. Public spending cuts, are uh, going to reduce some organisations so they're no longer viable. Sudden loss of, <coughs> of contracts would mean that already a lot of good people in the sector will be made redundant. Increased casework pressures, organisations will close. I think the Refugee Council IS are estimating about 200 or so community groups you know, to close. And mergers and partnerships, we say, is the answer, but they take time. You know. And so I think this is a concept that has got no change management attached to it. There's no milestones. When people say, we're going to have chaos for a while, well, we are having chaos. Uh, and it's a very, very difficult chaos to manage. And the real threat is that big society actually destroys big society before it's even started. And that, that is really serious. Questions. Questions, I think, for the sector. Questions for the sector, how do we regroup? And I think it's important to, to think that, to realize that we are going to have to regroup. We are going to have to be different and operate differently. But I think we need a really serious, intelligent discussion within the sector about who we are and what we do, and recognise some of the different styles and approaches. And I believe in an eclectic approach, so these are not alternatives. But there are differences between large-scale providers of public services, big NGOs and community-based organisations. We do different things, we've got different functions, and the same solutions and answers don't meet each other's needs. There is a difference between community development work and community organising. They're different approaches. They can complement each other, but they are different. There's a difference between social enterprise and I put charity, but I mean it's, it's a nasty word. But social enterprise versus just careful, engaged, sitting alongside and being with and helping and supporting people who are extremely desperate and destitute and vulnerable. There is a difference, and. I think the sector really has to sit down and talk with itself about those differences, recognise them and then make sure that we keep the core elements of who we are and what we are doing and don't lose them. And I think those are social bridging activities, they are community development work, they are direct services and they are voice. And we've got to try somehow or other and create and recognise that we're going to have to work within a new agenda, a new agenda of much more intense poverty. And, and I began work, you know, in this sector when there was no issue around poverty for refugees. Refugees got global authority housing instantly, they got income support instantly, trade unions supported them to go to university and so on. The issues were back home, what was going on and how they could get back home and solidarity issues. As the years have gone by, there has been an increased, increased, and increasing levels of impoverishment and exclusion amongst refugees and migrants and we are going to be at a point where we have to take one step further in our support. I think a big question is how you build and where you build <coughs> partnerships. Where is the entry point for refugee and migrant communities into the wider reconstructed civil society? Is it at the local level? Is it through the new localism is going to work? Is it intersectoral? So actually, we stop thinking of ourselves as a little silo and actually think about connections with other groups because there'll be a lot more disadvantaged groups now than there have been. Or is it just about ensuring that there is a space for reconstructing a a refugee and migrant sector out of the chaos that we're, we're living through at the moment? So my conclusions. First of all, I think that big society is a new social contract. It asks a lot of us as individuals and it asks a lot of communities. I think that refugees and migrants are survivors so the sector will not just disappear, people will not just disappear, they will continue and they will adapt. But I think it is possible that the demands of vulnerable people (coughs) in the community, the very vulnerable people in the community, lacking essential government supports, will become too great for the refugee and migrant communities, which will have a reduced capacity. So I think we've got reason to be afraid in terms of how we are going to deal with the, the issues of exclusion and destitution in the future. That's where I kind of finished and then um, <coughs> added one slide as a kind of postscript in the light of thinking about David Cameron's speech last uh, Saturday, wasn't it, and uh, some of the stuff that's gone on in the press. And it crossed my mind, what happens if, happens if it's all wrong? You know, what happens if the analysis that uh, somehow or other, the big government has made us very passive recipients of services. What if that's not correct? And what if the reason we are passive recipients in, and less active as we used to be is to do with a whole range of other more complex factors, uh, commercialization, technical factors, globalization and all of these other things? And what if the deficit reduction strategy turns out to be an inadequate tool to restore? You know, the, the, the plan B, what's the plan B? And I think if you're in the refugee and migrant sector, you have to be very conscious that there may well be an increase in scapegoating and blame, and we have to be just very, very astute in keeping an eye on those issues as well.